Part 5 of History of the Thirty Years' War, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Thirty Years' War, Volume 5, by Friedrich Schiller. Part 5. The French army, sensibly weakened by an expedition undertaken at so severe a season of the year, had, after the taking of Rothweil, withdrawn into the neighborhood of Duttlingen, where it lay in complete security, without expectation of a hostile attack. In the meantime, the enemy collected a considerable force, with a view to prevent the French from establishing themselves beyond the Rhine and so near to Bavaria, and to protect that quarter from their ravages. The imperialists, under Hatzfeld, had formed a junction with the Bavarians under Mercy, and the Duke of Lorraine, who, during the whole course of the war, was generally found everywhere except in his own duchy, joined their united forces. It was resolved to force the quarters of the French in Duttlingen and the neighboring villages by surprise, a favorite mode of proceeding in this war, and which, being commonly accompanied by confusion, occasioned more bloodshed than a regular battle. On the present occasion, there was the more to justify it, as the French soldiers, unaccustomed to such enterprises, conceived themselves protected by the severity of the winter against any surprise. John de Velt, a master in this species of warfare, which he had often put in practice against Gustavus Horn, conducted the enterprise and succeeded, contrary to all expectation. The attack was made on a side where it was least looked for, on account of the woods and narrow passes, and a heavy snowstorm which fell upon the same day, the 24th of November, 1643, concealed the approach of the vanguard till it halted before Duttlingen. The whole of the artillery without the place, as well as the neighboring castle of Honburg, were taken without resistance. Duttlingen itself was gradually surrounded by the enemy, and all connection with the other quarters and the adjacent villages silently and suddenly cut off. The French were vanquished without firing a cannon. The cavalry owed their escape to the swiftness of their horses, and the few minutes in advance which they had gained upon their pursuers. The infantry were cut to pieces, or voluntarily laid down their arms. About 2,000 men were killed, and 7,000, with 25 staff officers and 90 captains, taken prisoners. This was, perhaps, the only battle in the whole course of the war, which produced nearly the same effect upon the party which gained and that which lost. Both these parties were Germans. The French disgraced themselves. The memory of this unfortunate day, which was renewed 100 years after at Rosbach, was indeed erased by the subsequent heroism of a Turenne and a Condé, but the Germans may be pardoned if they indemnified themselves for the miseries which the policy of France had heaped upon them by these severe reflections upon her intrepidity. Meantime, this defeat of the French was calculated to prove highly disastrous to Sweden, as the whole power of the emperor might now act against them, while the number of their enemies was increased by a formidable accession. Torstenson had, in September 1643, suddenly left Moravia and moved into Silesia. The cause of this step was a secret, and the frequent changes which took place in the direction of his march contributed to increase his perplexity. From Silesia, after numberless circuits, he advanced towards the Elbe, while the imperialists followed him into Lusatia. Throwing a bridge across the Elbe at Torgau, he gave out that he intended to penetrate through Meissen into the upper Palatinate in Bavaria. At Balbi he also made a movement, as if to pass that river, 
but continued to move down the Elbe as far as Havelburg, where he astonished his troops by informing them that he was leading them against the Danes in Holstein. The partiality which Christian IV had displayed against the Swedes in his office of mediator, the jealousy which led him to do all in his power to hinder the progress of their arms, the restraints which he laid upon their navigation of the sound, and the burdens which he imposed upon their commerce, had long roused the indignation of Sweden, and at last, when these grievances increased daily, had determined the regency to measures of retaliation. Dangerous as it seemed to involve the nation in a new war, when, even amidst its conquests, it was almost exhausted by the old, the desire of revenge and the deep-rooted hatred which subsisted between Danes and Swedes prevailed over all other considerations, and even the embarrassment in which hostilities with Germany had plunged it only served as an additional motive to try its fortune against Denmark. Matters were, in fact, arrived at last to that extremity that the war was prosecuted merely for the purpose of furnishing food and employment to the troops, that good winter quarters formed the chief subject of contention, and that success, in this point, was more valued than a decisive victory. But now the provinces of Germany were almost exhausted and laid waste. They were wholly destitute of provisions, horses, and men, which, in Holstein, were to be found in profusion. If by this movement Torstensen should succeed merely in recruiting his army, providing subsistence for his horses and soldiers, and remounting his cavalry, all the danger and difficulty would be well repaid. Besides, it was highly important, on the eve of negotiations for peace, to diminish the injurious influence which Denmark might exercise upon these deliberations, to delay the treaty itself, which threatened to be prejudicial to the Swedish interests, by sowing confusion among the parties interested, and with a view to the amount of indemnification, to increase the number of her conquests in order to be the more sure of securing those which alone she was anxious to retain. Moreover, the present state of Denmark justified even greater hopes, if only the attempt were executed with rapidity and silence. The secret was in fact so well kept in Stockholm that the Danish minister had not the slightest suspicion of it, and neither France nor Holland were let into the scheme. Actual hostilities commenced with the declaration of war, and Torstensen was in Holstein before even an attack was expected. The Swedish troops, meeting with no resistance, quickly overran this duchy, and made themselves masters of all its strong places, except Rendsburg and Gluckstadt. Another army penetrated into Schonen, which made as little opposition, and nothing but the severity of the season prevented the enemy from passing the Lesser Baltic and carrying the war into Funen and Zealand. The Danish fleet was unsuccessful at Fehmel, and Christian himself, who was on board, lost his right eye by a splinter. Cut off from all communication with the distant force of the emperor, his ally, this king was on the point of seeing his whole kingdom overrun by the Swedes, and all things threatened the speedy fulfillment of the old prophecy of the famous Tycho Brahe, that in the year 1644, Christian IV should wander in the greatest misery from his dominions. But the emperor could not look on with indifference while Denmark was sacrificed to Sweden, and the latter strengthened by so great an acquisition. Notwithstanding great difficulties lay in the way of so long a march through desolated provinces, he did not hesitate to dispatch an army into Holstein, under Count Gallus, who, after Piccolomini's retirement, had resumed the supreme command of the troops. Gallus accordingly appeared in the duchy, took Kyle, 
and hoped, by forming a junction with the Danes, to be able to shut up the Swedish army in Jutland. Meantime, the Hessians and the Swedish general Königsmark were kept in check by Hatzfeldt and the Archbishop of Bremen, the son of Christian IV, and afterwards the Swedes drawn into Saxony by an attack upon Meissen. But Torstenson, with his augmented army, penetrated through the unoccupied pass betwixt Schleswig and Stapelholm, met Gallus, and drove him along the whole course of the Elbe, as far as Bernburg, where the imperialists took up an entrenched position. Torstenson passed the Saal, and by posting himself in the rear of the enemy, cut off their communication with Saxony and Bohemia. Scarcity and famine began now to destroy them in great numbers, and forced them to retreat to Magdeburg, where, however, they were not much better off. The cavalry, which endeavoured to escape into Silesia, was overtaken and routed by Torstenson near Jutabok. The rest of the army, after a vain attempt to fight its way through the Swedish lines, was almost wholly destroyed near Magdeburg. From this expedition, Gallus brought back only a few thousand men of all his formidable force, and the reputation of being a consummate master in the art of ruining an army. The King of Denmark, after this unsuccessful effort to relieve him, sued for peace, which he obtained at Bremsebor in the year 1645, under very unfavorable conditions. Torstenson rapidly followed up his victory, and while Axel Lilienstern, one of the generals who commanded under him, overawed Saxony, and Königsmark subdued the whole of Bremen, he himself penetrated into Bohemia with 16,000 men and 80 pieces of artillery, and endeavoured a second time to remove the seat of war into the hereditary dominions of Austria. Ferdinand, upon this intelligence, hastened in person to Prague in order to animate the courage of the people by his presence, and as a skilful general was much required, and so little unanimity prevailed among the numerous leaders, he hoped in the immediate neighborhood of the war to be able to give more energy and activity. In obedience to his orders, Hatzfeldt assembled the whole Austrian and Bavarian force, and, contrary to his own inclination and advice, formed the emperor's last army, and the last bulwark of his states, in order of battle to meet the enemy who were approaching at Jankowitz on the 24th of February, 1645. Ferdinand depended upon his cavalry, which outnumbered that of the enemy by 3,000, and upon the promise of the Virgin Mary, who had appeared to him in a dream, and given him the strongest assurances of a complete victory. The superiority of the imperialists did not intimidate Torstenson, who was not accustomed to number his antagonists. On the very first onset, the left wing, which Goetz, the general of the League, had entangled in a disadvantageous position among marshes and thickets, was totally routed. The general, with the greater part of his men, killed, and almost the whole ammunition of the army taken. This unfortunate commencement decided the fate of the day. The Swedes, constantly advancing, successively carried all the most commanding heights. After a bloody engagement of eight hours, a desperate attack on the part of the imperial cavalry and a vigorous resistance by the Swedish infantry, the latter remained in possession of the field. Two thousand Austrians were killed upon the spot, and Hatzfeld himself, with three thousand men, taken prisoners. Thus, on the same day, did the emperor lose his best general and his last army. This decisive victory at Jankowitz at once exposed all the Austrian territory to the enemy. Ferdinand hastily fled to Vienna to provide for its defense and to save his family and his treasures. 
In a very short time, the victorious Swedes poured like an inundation upon Moravia and Austria. After they had subdued nearly the whole of Moravia, invested Brünn, and taken all the strongholds as far as the Danube, and carried the entrenchments at the Wolf's Bridge near Vienna, they at last appeared in sight of that capital, while the care which they had taken to fortify their conquests showed that their visit was not likely to be a short one. After a long and destructive circuit through every province of Germany, the stream of war had at last rolled backwards to its source, and the roar of the Swedish artillery now reminded the terrified inhabitants of those balls which, twenty-seven years before, the Bohemian rebels had fired into Vienna. The same theater of war brought again similar actors on the scene. Torstensen invited Ragotsky, the successor of Bethlen Gabor, to his assistance, as the Bohemian rebels had solicited that of his predecessor. Upper Hungary was already inundated by his troops, and his union with the Swedes was daily apprehended. The elector of Saxony, driven to despair by the Swedes taking up their quarters within his territories, and abandoned by the emperor, who, after the defeat at Jankowitz, was unable to defend himself, at length adopted the last and only expedient which remained, and concluded a truce with Sweden, which was renewed from year to year to the general peace. The emperor thus lost a friend, while a new enemy was appearing at his very gates, his armies dispersed, and his allies in other quarters of Germany defeated. The French army had effaced the disgrace of their defeat at Deutlingen by a brilliant campaign, and had kept the whole force of Bavaria employed upon the Rhine and in Swabia. Reinforced with fresh troops from France, which the great Turenne, already distinguished by his victories in Italy, brought to the assistance of the Duke of Anguien, they appeared on the 3rd of August, 1644, before Freiburg, which Mercy had lately taken, and now covered, with his whole army strongly entrenched. But against the steady firmness of the Bavarians, all the impetuous valor of the French was exerted in vain, and after a fruitless sacrifice of 6,000 men, the Duke of Enghien was compelled to retreat. Mazarin shed tears over this great loss, which Condé, who had no feeling for anything but glory, disregarded. A single night in Paris, said he, gives birth to more men than this action has destroyed. The Bavarians, however, were so disabled by this murderous battle, that far from being in a condition to relieve Austria from the menaced dangers, they were too weak even to defend the banks of the Rhine. Spires, Vomps, and Mannheim capitulated, the strong fortress of Philipsburg was forced to surrender by famine, and by a timely submission, Mentz hastened to disarm the conquerors. Austria and Moravia, however, were now freed from Torstensen, by a similar means of deliverance, as in the beginning of the war had saved them from the Bohemians. Rogotsky, at the head of 20,000 men, had advanced into the neighborhood of the Swedish quarters upon the Danube. But these wild, undisciplined hordes, instead of seconding the operations of Torstensen by any vigorous enterprise, only ravaged the country and increased the distress which, even before their arrival, had begun to be felt in the Swedish camp. To extort tribute from the emperor and money and plunder from his subjects was the sole object that had allured Rogotsky, or his predecessor, Bethlen Gabor, into the field, and both departed as soon as they had gained their end. To get rid of him, Ferdinand granted the barbarian whatever he asked, and by a small sacrifice freed his states of this formidable enemy. In the meantime, the main body of the Swedes had been greatly weakened by a tedious encampment before Brunn. 
Torstenson, who commanded in person, for four entire months employed in vain all his knowledge of military tactics. The obstinacy of the resistance was equal to that of the assault, while despair roused the courage of Souche, the commandant, a Swedish deserter, who had no hope of pardon. The ravages caused by pestilence, arising from famine, want of cleanliness, and the use of unripe fruit during their tedious and unhealthy encampment, with the sudden retreat of the Prince of Transylvania, at last compelled the Swedish leader to raise the siege. As all the passes upon the Danube were occupied, and his army greatly weakened by famine and sickness, he at last relinquished his intended plan of operations against Austria and Moravia, and contented himself with securing a key to these provinces by leaving behind him Swedish garrisons in the conquered fortresses. He then directed his march into Bohemia, whither he was followed by the imperialists under the Archduke Leopold. Such of the lost places as had not been retaken by the latter were recovered, after his departure, by the Austrian general Buchheim, so that, in the course of the following year, the Austrian frontier was again cleared of the enemy, and Vienna escaped with mere alarm. In Bohemia and Silesia, too, the Swedes maintained themselves only with a very variable fortune. They traversed both countries without being able to hold their ground in either. But if the designs of Torstensen were not crowned with all the success which they were promised at the commencement, they were nevertheless productive of the most important consequences to the Swedish party. Denmark had been compelled to a peace, Saxony to a truce. The emperor, in the deliberations for a peace, offered greater concessions. France became more manageable, and Sweden itself bolder and more confident in its bearing towards these two crowns. Having thus nobly performed his duty, the author of these advantages retired, adorned with laurels into the tranquility of private life, and endeavored to restore his shattered health. By the retreat of Torstensen, the emperor was relieved from all fears of an eruption on the side of Bohemia. But a new danger soon threatened the Austrian frontier from Swabia and Bavaria. Turenne, who had separated from Condé and taken the direction of Swabia, had in the year 1645 been totally defeated by Marcy near Margentheim, and the victorious Bavarians, under their brave leader, poured into Hesse. But the Duke of Enghien hastened with considerable succors from Alsace, Königsmark from Moravia, and the Hessians from the Rhine, to recruit the defeated army, and the Bavarians were in turn compelled to retire to the extreme limits of Swabia. Here they posted themselves at the village of Allersheim, near Nördlingen, in order to cover the Bavarian frontier. But no obstacle could check the impetuosity of the Duke of Enghien, in person, he led on his troops against the enemy's entrenchments, and a battle took place, which the heroic resistance of the Bavarians rendered most obstinate and bloody, till at last the death of the great Marcy, the skill of Turenne, and the iron firmness of the Hessians decided the day in favor of the Allies. But even this second barbarous sacrifice of life had little effect either on the course of the war or on the negotiations for peace. The French army, exhausted by this bloody engagement, was still farther weakened by the departure of the Hessians, and the Bavarians, being reinforced by the Archduke Leopold, Turenne was again obliged hastily to recross the Rhine. The retreat of the French enabled the enemy to turn his whole force upon the Swedes in Bohemia. Gustavus Wrangel, no unworthy successor of Banna and Torstensen, had in 1646 been appointed commander-in-chief of the Swedish army 
which, besides Königsmark's flying corps and the numerous garrisons disposed throughout the empire, amounted to about 8,000 horse and 15,000 foot. The Archduke, after reinforcing his army, which already amounted to 24,000 men, with 12 Bavarian regiments of cavalry and 18 regiments of infantry, moved against Wrangel in the hope of being able to overwhelm him by his superior force before Königsmark could join him or the French effect a diversion in his favor. Wrangel, however, did not await him, but hastened through Upper Saxony to the Weser, where he took Hörster and Paderborn. From thence he marched into Hesse in order to join Turenne, and at his camp in Wetzlar was joined by the flying corps of Königsmark. But Turenne, fettered by the instructions of Mazarin, who had seen with jealousy the warlike prowess and increasing power of the Swedes, excused himself on the plea of a pressing necessity to defend the frontier of France on the side of the Netherlands, in consequence of the Flemings having failed to make the promised diversion. But as Wrangel continued to press his just demand, and a longer opposition might have excited distrust on the part of the Swedes, or induced them to conclude a private treaty with Austria, Turenne at last obtained the wished-for permission to join the Swedish army. End of Part 5 Recording by Owen Cook in Potawatomi Ceded Land